happy to have you all here tonight. And I think we've got a couple of visitors even, and I'm happy to have you here. But I'm going to go ahead and start off with a confession, which is uh, this week, you know, we decided to take the Genesis track of the lectionary. And last week's story was a little bit hairy. Uh, it was a little tough one if you weren't here. It was hard, it wasn't an easy one to preach necessarily. But today, um, I am tasked with what is honestly probably my least favorite story in Scripture, uh, if I'm honest with you, if you're allowed to say that. And, and there's some stiff competition because whew, there's some stuff in our Bible. If you haven't read it or not, it's, it's there. And uh, I'm, I'm supposed to preach uh, this story. Uh, the Bible is not for the faint of heart. Uh, and this story has honestly deeply disturbed me since I was a kid. I remember hearing the story. I remember seeing artwork about the story. And I, it always made me uncomfortable. It always disturbed me. Um, I've just never been able to swallow the way it was talked about. It never felt right to me. I'd never liked the way I've heard it preached, especially in my church growing up. Uh, and so my took my task this week uh, seriously, arguably too seriously. Um, I spend way more time reading and prepping for the sermon than I normally have time to do. Apologies to my job during the week for the time I stole. Uh, it was for the Lord, so I think it's I think it's legal. Um, but and I and I also was looking back, and I think I've I've been preaching in one form or another for 25 years now, and I think I've successfully avoided ever talking about this story before this week, which is a pretty good run, I have to say. Uh, so I feel pretty good about that. But now you get to get all 25 years built up into one sermon. We should be out of here by 10 p.m. It'll be fun. Uh, and, but it's going to be. It's. It, I'm trying to cram a lot in here because I actually found some new scholarship on this story this week. Some new ideas that just kind of help bring into focus some things that I've been thinking about and didn't have language for and some new ideas, and I want to pass this on to you. I want to give you this new lens uh, for this week. But a lot of this is going to sound more like uh, I'm presenting a, a court case uh, for something than a sermon. But at the end, I promise I'll get to at least a one-minute sermon at the end, okay? So let's go ahead and read the text. And, and no, I apologize. It looked like I may have gotten some slides out of order, so you may have to dance around to find uh, Genesis 22, 1 through 19, a nice long passage here, and uh, it'll definitely help you sleep better tonight. Okay, Genesis 22, 1 through 19 says this. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, not the only son, by the way, we learned that story last week, but your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, Father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, The fire and the wood are here. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for burnt offering, my son. And the two of them walked on together. I would like to say that in the original Hebrew is my understanding that how you put the comma there depends on how you translate the Hebrew. It could be, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son, or God will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. 
you know, where you put the comma makes a big difference there. Either the son is the lamb or there's going to be a lamb instead of the son. Two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will indeed bless you, and I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of their enemies. And by your offspring shall the nations of the earth gain blessings for themselves, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. And they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. So traditionally this story, the binding of Isaac, is treated as a story that demonstrates the heroic faith of Abraham. There's nothing that Abraham will hold back from God. When God comes calling for Abraham's long-promised and miraculous son named Isaac, or laughter. Abraham doesn't question the sovereign God. Abraham doesn't even say anything. He just packs up the stuff, takes his son on a long journey, builds an altar. He pulls out what would have been basically a meat cleaver and is about to slaughter his firstborn for God. God is so pleased that Abraham so blindly, faithfully followed him and did what he said, that he would be willing to murder his own son that God then promises to bless Isaac. Then Abraham goes home justified for being willing to do the hardest thing imaginable. This is the story that I grew up with. Maybe you grew up with too. This is the sermons I always heard on the binding of Isaac. It's a nice one, isn't it? You know, good night, honey. Hope you enjoyed daddy's bedtime Bible story. Hope God doesn't call, come, doesn't call for us tonight. Right? Won't shock you to know that I'm not a fan of this way of talking about it. It won't shock you to know that I'm not planning on going that direction with it today. It's kind of appropriate that thunder just keeps happening maybe throughout this entire thing, given the topic. I simply don't have it in me to frame it up in that same way. I know that many of us have been taught to read the Bible without question, like Abraham goes without question in the story, and then call that faith. But I don't actually believe that's how it's supposed to go. I don't believe that's true for us, and I don't think that the lack of argument demonstrated by Abraham was good for him either. I'm going to go ahead and mention uh, much of what we're going to talk about tonight is strongly informed by a book I read this week that has some new scholarship in it that I fell in love with. It's called Abraham's Silence by J. Richard Middleton, and I'm unabashedly ripping it off tonight. I should probably put a quote at the beginning and at the end of my sermon. I'm not sure if that's MLA style, but that's the citation. He does a great job of summing up the ideas that I'm going to talk about. So what I want to do first is I want to give you a couple reasons why we shouldn't settle 
for that traditional way of talking about this passage. First, first reason we should question the traditional interpretation is because it is on its face ethically suspect at the least. We know something's not right about this. I read a quote recently that is attributed to George MacDonald, who I like a lot, but as I did some research, as we're supposed to do with quotes on the internet, turns out it's not actually a quote of his, but it's a summation of a couple paragraphs in one of his sermons called Judgment. It's a terrific sermon. You should read it. I'm not going to read the couple paragraphs, so I'm just going to read the fake citation that sums it up, because it's actually done pretty well. But the quote, or fake quote, said this, God does nothing as a judge that he wouldn't do as a father. God does nothing as a judge that he wouldn't do as a father, and I will accept nothing in the description of God that I would find abhorrent in a man. I will accept nothing in the description of God that I would find abhorrent in a man. I'm a fan of this idea in theology. If you pulled me aside as the pastor later on tonight and told me that God spoke to you and told you to kill your child for the Lord, I would not question whether it was true or not. I would not need to test it any further. I would call the cops and I'd have you committed immediately, as I should. It would be an abhorrent thing to think about and to do. Full stop. No question. We all know this. I doubt there's anyone that wants to take the other side of that argument. If you do, don't. There is no world in which such a thing could be called holy or loving or good. I'm not willing to suspend that truth with you or anyone else who brought that to me. And I don't know that we need to be willing to suspend that truth in this story just because it's Abraham and not you. Another thing that we struggle with a lot in Scripture is trying to think that everything that we read is prescriptive when some of it is just descriptive. But I will accept nothing in the description of God that I would find abhorrent in a man. This whole situation is ethically dubious at best. That's a, not a strong enough word. The other question is, why would God need Abraham to pass this test anyways? God has already made promises to him that have survived whatever crazy antics that Abraham was a part of. Everything Abraham has done or hasn't done. He's already moved away from his family. He's already done all the things God asked him to do. Abraham has banished even his eldest son into the wilderness to try to be faithful to God. Nothing new is accomplished with the knowledge that Abraham would slaughter his own child out of piety. Another reason to question whether Abraham's act of faith here was a totally good thing is what results from the action. The Bible tells us we can know a tree by its fruits, that we can judge an activity by what it produces in this world. A system is judged by its product. And by all appearances, this event, this watershed moment in Abraham and his family's life is a moment that produces destruction for the family of promise. Consider all of these things, which I'd never heard talked about before, that all follow after this incident in the scriptures. After this scene, after this chapter, we have no record of God ever speaking directly to Abraham again. After this scene, after Isaac is almost killed by his father, Isaac and Abraham are never together again. In fact, Abraham and Isaac don't even leave this scene together. If you read the end of this story, Abraham leaves with his young men. Isaac is nowhere to be found. 
And I don't think it's far-fetched to say that if I went on this trip with my dad, I probably wouldn't travel back with him either. They're never together again in the scriptural narrative. And it's not just that Isaac is estranged from Abraham. Abraham's entire family is blown apart from this point on in the story. Abraham and his young men move to Beersheba, not with Sarah, not with Isaac. Isaac moves to Beer Lahai Roy, which is a long way from where his father is living. Sarah lives in Hebron. Not surprising, she may not want to be with Abraham. He's given her away twice, pretending that, he, that she was his sister, and then tried to kill her only son. Ishmael lives in the wilderness of Paran. Hagar, interestingly enough, lives in Beersheba too. With Abraham? We don't know. But they are no longer in contact. They no longer speak to each other. They're no longer in a scene with each other in the rest of this narrative unless one of them is going for the burial of the other. They no longer live together. The family is broken from this point on. Then beyond that, if you focus on Isaac, what you see is Isaac ends up kind of receding a little bit in this narrative from here on out. Isaac, this child of promise who seems like everything hinges on him, begins to blend into the background a little bit. He has no meaningful part in advancing the covenant story until he is old and desperately trying to convene a, a, his own a blessing on his own son Esau, a blessing that he never received from his father, which may explain why he's so desperate to do it. There's stories of him, but he's not meaningfully moving the story forward in any way. His other son, Jacob, who is, uh, of course, the, uh, the one who steals the blessing and is a little bit uh, underhanded, is a far more important character in the story. Isaac is kind of transitional. He seems diminished. In fact, you could, you could intuit that this scene not only negatively affects his relationship with Abraham, his father, but his own relationship to God. In Genesis 31, as it talks about God and the ancestors, it says this. It says that Yahweh was the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac. It's a big sentence. That was well-timed. God, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac. God is referred to as Isaac's fear after this point. That, to me, is one of the saddest sentences. All of this to say that if we can judge a tree by its fruit, this tree is bad. There's only trauma and brokenness that follows the silent willingness to sacrifice Isaac in this story. It just doesn't feel like a giant victory of faith to me. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are saying, yeah, but Mike, doesn't God bless Abraham at the end of the story? You're forgetting about that. And my answer to that is, I mean, yes and no. But don't get me wrong. That, that, is a little, that makes my whole way of looking at this messier for sure. It'd be easier for me if that wasn't there. I'm not entirely sure what to do with what the angels tell Abraham at the end of the story. But technically, neither Abraham nor Isaac end up with anything that wasn't already promised by God. God does reiterate a blessing of Isaac's lineage at the end of the story. But remember, God has already promised this several times. And God has promised it without equivocation. There's nothing that anyone else has to do to make it happen. God has chosen these people to do this thing through. It was not a promise that was going anywhere, and it wasn't based on any conditions. So yes, there is this reiteration of a promise at the end, but nothing new was achieved. So to be clear, 
What I believe and what I would like to present tonight is the idea that the binding of Isaac shows two things. It absolutely shows that Abraham is willing to do anything for God. I don't think that's in question. Abraham is willing to do anything for God. But it also, and maybe more importantly, demonstrates a total misunderstanding of God's character. Imagine after the service if you came to me and you said, I love this church, I love Ecclesia. I'm willing to do anything to help the church succeed and to help the Lord accomplish its mission through this church. In fact, what I'm going to do once it stops raining is I'm going to go out and burn down every other church in town just to help. Two things would be true of you. One, you would be very committed to this church, far more so than me on some level. And two, you have drastically misunderstood what we are here for. You don't understand the character of what we're trying to do. You are both sincere and you are wrong. Much like Saul who hunted Christians for God before later joining them for God, I would argue that uh, Abraham being silent here is both sincere and wrong. Like anyone who kills in God's name. People who flew planes into the buildings in New York were sincere. They were just wrong. Ethically, morally, theologically, it makes far more sense to me that Abraham should have said something. I mean, anything. And he doesn't. Here I am is all he says until he answers that question from Isaac. And the thing that bothers me most about it, and should bother all of us, is that he had happily argued with God in the past. When God indicated that Ishmael would not be the son of the promised covenant, Abraham asked God to reconsider Ishmael. When God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, where his son didn't live, Abraham argued for its rescue. I would say that he bargained with God, but it wasn't a bargain because God just keeps saying yes. Hey, God, what if there's 50 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah? Will you say it then? Yes, if there's 50. 45. Okay. 40. Sure. 20? Yes, I will save it if there's 20. Can I get a 10? Okay, Abraham. There's no back and forth. There's only yeses from God. There's no reason to think that God wouldn't have kept saying yes if Abraham had kept going. But Abraham stops at 10 for reasons I don't know. But he argues with God to save Sodom and Gomorrah. The entire Old Testament is filled with stories of prophets who contend with God on behalf of the people, those who stand with one foot in God's kingdom, one foot in this world, and have conversations going both ways. The, the psalm we read tonight, Psalm 13, is a psalm of a human being contending with God. The entire book of Job is about this. In fact, some think that the entire book of Job, is one of the things I read this week, might have been written in response to this scene, to Abraham's silence as a rebuttal for it. But in the book of Job, there's only one person who gets commended by God, and that's Job, the one who argues with him. Abraham was committed, but he didn't get it. He didn't understand yet who God was. He didn't understand that Yahweh was not like the other gods of Abraham's time. 
gods that Abraham probably at one point worshipped. If you look, he, he, didn't, he wasn't starting out a monotheist in this whole, this whole journey. This God, Yahweh, does not require human sacrifices. It does not require for you to kill your firstborn to show how devoted you are. In fact, when you read, look at this story in the Hebrew that we read today, the word for God throughout the entire story is the general term for God, Ha Elohim, which could also be translated deity or the gods. It's a very general term for God. And it's not until the angel excitedly interrupts Abraham, drastically yells his name twice to get him to stop, that it's called Yahweh, his name by name. Even within this story, it seems like a move of defining who Yahweh is compared to other gods. Because Abraham did not yet understand the true nature of God, the true character of God, we see what always happens play out from this point on. Carnage. Now luckily, because the angel spoke up in time, not physical carnage, but emotional and spiritual and relational carnage nonetheless. Nothing breaks us like violence in the name of God. Few things have caused more harm in the world than people acting nothing like the God who is love while claiming that God as their muse. Far too many people have died on that altar. Some of you have felt like you've been on it a time or two. Abraham was sincerely wrong. God gave him every second of an unnecessarily long three-day journey to just say something, to say anything. And there's no reason to think that just like in Sodom and Gomorrah when that conversation was happening, that God would have capitulated immediately. But he didn't say anything. And I think we can call that what it is, wrong. God remains true to God's promises, even though Abraham still doesn't quite know who God is, and that says a lot about God. But I think God wanted him to say something, like he wants us to. So that's my court case. Let me end with a 30-second sermon. May we learn from Abraham's destructive choice to keep his mouth shut in the face of obvious injustice. May we never blame God for the things we do that bear no resemblance to God whatsoever. May we not accept anything said or believed in our holy God that we would know to be unquestionably evil in each other. And may we argue. May we contend for what is good and right in this world, even when God is cited as the source of what is causing so much chaos and destruction. May we argue. May we say something. May we contend for what is good and for what is pure and know that God is waiting for us to say something. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are so grateful that you are not a capricious angry Lord. You're not a God who makes, un, makes, makes demands of us that make no sense or that are evil. That you are a God who is love. That you always have been a God who is love. And that no part of you falls outside of that. God, 
God, as we wrestle with difficult stories like today's, may we be willing to step into the fray. May we contend for what is good and right and pure in this world. 